Hey everybody, thanks again for tuning back into The Mound Visit. This podcast is brought to you by our great friends and everybody's great friends in the catching community, All-Star Sports. All-Star continues to provide innovation with their quality and super safe equipment. Follow them on Instagram and or Twitter and see the latest challenges from hashtag throughout Thursdays or their walk-up challenge. Remember, move forward and rise above. And this is a reminder for all of you to head on over to our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button. Once you hit that subscribe button, you will automatically be entered in our next giveaway. So let's get rolling with any number four of game number three. We take a mound visit with ex-MLB pitcher and current sports performance trainer and owner of PFA Fitness, Dave Coggin. Want to learn the science of throwing? Let's get rolling. We're coming at you right now now. We are back here at the mound visit. It's the fourth inning, and I'm one of your hosts, Tyler Goodrill. And always with me is my other co-host, Chris Snooze. And we are shifting this back to the other end of the battery. We are bringing in former MLB pitcher Dave Coggin, who is also the owner of PFA Fitness in Claremont, California. Dave, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, Chris, for having me. Absolutely. Well, again, it's a little bit different for us because we have had a pitcher on. Now we're back to the mound and we're interviewing another pitcher. So we like to start our guest off, Dave, with a drill. Basically, it's just asking you some questions, just a little bit about your career or questions you don't normally get asked. Since you're a pitcher, we're shifting the name back to our PFP drill. All right. So first question that I have for you, Dave, is Who is your favorite college football team? Oh, that's easy. Clemson Tigers. Go on to that. Tell us why Clemson is your favorite baseball team or football team. Excuse me. Yes. I'm sure everybody out there is probably thinking like, oh, of course, everybody's front runner. Right. Um, But my uh, my roots go a little deeper with Clemson. So I was a um, high school quarterback in in, uh, 1995. And I actually committed to go be a quarterback there uh, and play college football when Clemson wasn't quite the powerhouse they were now, but they were still good. They're top 10, but they weren't, they definitely weren't slinging it around like they do now. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was my scholarship. I was going to head there, go play uh, baseball and football quarterback and, and pitch and play third. And yeah, so that, that grew up. And I grew up a Clemson fan. My dad is an alumni there. So being on the West coast, people were kind of confused when they saw me sign to play in South Carolina. They was like, what the heck? Why, aren't, why not UCLA or USC? Um, but yeah, that was a good fit for me. And, and that's my, that's my college team since day one. And I'm living a, a really good Clemson life for the last like five, six years. <laughs> finally, finally, no longer can say you've been Clemson. Well, I, I don't mean to, <laughs> I don't mean to plug my hometown, but, uh, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. Well, I'm still yeah. here. So Clemson was always a staple in the college world series. So they're fun yeah, to they watch. Were, yeah, they were good. They, that year they were number one. They had Chris Benson and, uh, mm-hmm. Billy Koch and, and, uh, the lefty pitcher too. They had a they had a stacked lineup. They didn't win, but but they were they were stacked. They were number one like almost every year. Seemed like there was one thing, and I don't know how much you watched on college baseball enough growing up, but they were in the when they were playing Miami. Uh, there was a left fielder ball hit down the third baseline, and um, he picked it up and threw it in the stands. Yeah, Gary threw it Burner. up in the stands, gave him a home run. Yeah, we played with him. We played with him. We know him. <laughs> that, that man loved to, walk her, he loved to walk around butt naked in the clubhouse, too. Oh, oh God, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, wouldn't, I don't even want to tell you what he'd say on, on pop-ups the first base. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Chris knows that one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we'll stuff. get into that. All right, so I'll throw a quick question. Real quick, favorite minor yeah. league manager? Roy Matika, man. Um, old school but um 
he was hey. I think he let yeah, I think he would I think he had a I don't know, like some record for wins or something. Remember uh just a probably your old schools, old school managers get just guy who probably just you know, probably stopped managing about five, ten years before he actually stopped <laughs> managing. <laughs> but it was a good that was a good run to have. <laughs> he was there. Ramon Henderson. Ramon Henderson's a good one too, Chris. Remember Ramon Henderson? Yeah. And his uh, Ricky Williams uh, speech after one of the games. <laughs> oh, yeah. Another uh, yeah. Uh, profanity laced uh, one I can't use on him. <laughs> but uh, yeah, those are the ones that come to mind. Oh yeah, oh yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Yep. All right, my next question for you, Dave, is. Do you recall your first outing in the big leagues and the first batter you faced? Uh, yeah, it was, um, it was against the Expos. Um, and it was uh, either Peter Bergeron or uh, Miguel Cabrera. I can't remember if they were one and two or two one. Um, and then you had, that was a stacked lineup. It was, it was, I got called up from double A to go to the big leagues and to fill a spot. Someone got injured. And the, um, they remember them telling me like, Hey, it's, it's going to be a good first big league experience because it's not that many fans, not that much pressure, um, good place to kind of kind of get your feet wet in it. But what they forgot to tell me is you had Jose Vidro batting like 420 in like June. Yep. And Vladimir Guerrero batting 415 in June. <laughs> and they had like <laughs> these dudes, that hitting lineup was ridiculous. Um, but it was it, it was there and it was good. And we got the, I, got, I did win. I, I got my debut uh, W. Um, most memorable part of it, two two things. Most memorable part of it. First thing, my first pitch to Vladdy was uh, was I think to start the inning, uh, maybe the third inning, or second inning. Maybe he was the first hitter, and uh, we had to face pitch him in, you know, establish a fastball in on him. So I just said, all right, here we go. So I just threw it as hard as I could in, and I just brushed him in the ribs, and he just gave, oh! <laughs> he just kind of toppled <laughs> over, and uh, and he never hit me for the rest of my career. He struck out. I don't care. He's my, high, my best highlight guy ever because he's chased everything. And I think in the back of his mind, he just thought I was going to break his rib again. Something. So, so uh, and he's that swung was, uh, at every, was, and, every and pitch. Everything. Oh, my God. I could throw it. And Lever throw our catcher would set up in the batter's box. No, no lie. He'd set up. And I just threw it over there. And sure enough, he'd swing at it. And I was like, geez. And, uh, you know, because we'd probably, you know, hit one or two against someone else uh, from that same exact spot and then think he can swing at everything. He's the only guy that probably could. But uh, the other thing I remembered too, was my first AB that I hadn't taken a, a bat in probably five years since high school. And uh, Javier Vasquez was the guy pitching and he was like Cy Young candidate that year. Yep. And he, he throws me that first, the first one I step in the box, I'm like, there's no way I'm this close. <laughs> that pitcher looks like he was on top of me. <laughs> I was like, and I throw a ball, it feels like it hit have like 10 minutes to figure out what they want to do with it and up there i was like good lord man that thing came in hot and then i struck out like three pitches and i was out. i was like oh. that's embarrassing but those are two memorable moments from, from that debut that did you fun. uh did you face uh moda when he was with them too is that that was all the same years yeah oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. moda that's right i haven't heard that yeah i'm talking about that name moda was there they yeah. had um had a good crew because we all kind of came up through Harrisburg, you know, and all the way through. That was that was like our whole uh, Ottawa team in, in yep, like Ottawa. '99 and 2000. Yeah. So, yeah, except Moda was like six eight, and it literally looked like he was handing the ball off to me. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. no effort. He's like, you know, here, 98. Like <laughs> Jesus Christ, you're five feet away from him. But oh yeah, man. oh yeah, yeah. All right. So next question, and I'll I'll stay. I'll keep a minor league theme. Um, just because those were the only times I knew. <laughs> but the uh, who was the what was the best in-game mascot that you've ever seen in the minors? Whether it was oh, uh, Myron, yeah, Noodleman, Myron Noodleman. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's my guy. Um, yeah, that's that's gonna be. I mean, the Blues Brothers are awesome too, but. Um, yeah, Myron's got that. He takes that for sure. See, I, w I would have sworn, being that since you played in Reading and you saw it every single day, the hot dog guy in Reading was probably my all-time favorite. I've never laughed. And I had <clears> – <throat> I got to go back there in 03, 04, 05 when I was with, with Pittsburgh. But I laughed my ass off every time. And, and Tyler, yeah, I don't know yeah. if you've ever – you'd have to you have to YouTube him, but there was a – 
there was a guy that worked at the park and he was a one of their mascots. He would dress up and it was like one of like you're riding the back of a ostrich, right? So he put his feet in it and he's running around holding these straps and like it was pulling him. So he'd run, you know, try and all of a sudden he'd go, Oh, right. And and then he would take he'd take like ten hot dogs that were wrapped in tinfoil and throw them as hard as he could. So they would pop out of the tinfoil. You got buns flying and just hot dogs everywhere. It was every time yeah. I saw it, I just I couldn't stop laughing. That was that was freaking yeah, great. Yeah. But Myron, did you ever get, did you ever talk to him? Did you ever talk to Noodleman on the yeah, side? He, yeah, like in the in the clubhouse, he'd be changing or something afterwards or before. He's like a totally normal guy. <laughs> it, was like, it was cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah nothing really crazy. I, I just remember his his uh, you know his his little point. And, Slap stuff with his little running man thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. So I got a two-parter for you here. Okay. Okay. Uh, since we're a catching show, well, I mean, now we're doing some pitching guys too. But uh, who is your favorite MLB catcher to have caught you, and who is your favorite minor league catcher to have caught you? Now, with that being said, we have one of your former guys. So I don't know if you want to throw him under the bus or. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we have we have so many guys in the Philly Zion on that one. Dude. He'll, he'll like the, he'll like the answer I have too, though. Um, easy is Mike Lieberthal for the, for my big league catcher. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was easy. He's, he's a stud. He's still one of my close friends now. See him a lot. So, wow. Uh, that's an easy one. Minor league one besides Chris, obviously. Jeremy Salazar. That's my guy right there. And Jeremy's been a friend of mine forever too. He's my roommate. He was uh, always, yeah, you remember Sally. Uh, Florida State catcher, and and he's um, yeah. I think I'd, I'd, I'd get too much crap if I didn't say uh, uh, Jeremy if he was watching this. You know? So yeah. So between those guys and Chris and you know uh, what we had Estrada, you know Estrada was a good catcher as well. You had um, you had che- you had Chester too back way back. Chester Layla, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. We had Kill- Killing good was telling us the story about him too. So we we, yeah. we had a little bit of Estee talk on uh, on it last week. So, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I think the one I had, the, yeah, the most closest one I've ever had, and and spent the most time. It was got to be Salazar because we went out, played together, then we lived together, and then we 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 visited his family all the time too. So I, I got to give him the notch, just ahead of you, Chris, just ahead of him. <laughs> so I I have to ask this then, going into since we brought up Jeremy, now were you at that? game in Scranton yeah when yeah, no, when, yeah. when an old old teammate of ours because we all played in Reading together yeah. Izzy gets uh yep. I think he got hit and he turned around and kung fu yep. kicked Jeremy right in the chest and then I know I think he was running yeah. around with a bat and people are like all right yeah. I'm not going too close to him but yeah yeah oh, yeah, my yeah, God. yeah yeah no we all, and no one knew what the heck that was all about I mean it was like the first inning first pitch and then all of a sudden, he's back kicking Jeremy and running out and chasing the pitcher, our pitcher. And then we find out later that it was all stemmed from something that those two had going on in the offseason at home in, in Puerto Rico or Dominican or something. So it was like a personal thing. So it wasn't even a ball that even came close to hitting him. He caught the ball, and then he gets kicked. And then all of a sudden, it's a melee. We're, like, running out there going, what, the heck? what are we doing? What are we fighting for? It's first inning. <laughs> so but Izzy Ty, didn't make Tyler, a lot of sense, so- my guy. Tyler, we had, we had Izzy, Izzy Alcantara was with us in Reading in 98, and it was a, um, he was on loan to us from Tampa Bay. Never heard of that before. They actually said, here, we don't, you just go play with the Phillies because they'll take you, but you're with us. So he hits like, he had like 13 home runs in a, in a month, right? And he, every single home run, it would be slower and slower and slower until he caused the brawl. And I remember specifically, we got our asses beat so bad. And I think Buffy got thrown out of the game. Al LaBeouf, our old manager, gets thrown out of the game. So, you know, he gets tossed in like the second inning. We come back after the game, and he starts just screaming and yelling at us. And I'm sitting next to, to Izzy, and all he can whisper is, he goes, oh, he, he shit me. He, he drunk. Look at, look at him. Look at yeah. him. And th- there were like, you know, there were like four of us next to him, and we're literally – biting I was I had a small cut in my mouth because I was biting the inside of my mouth so I wouldn't laugh because you know when you start giggling in a in a, in a setting well, you're, and done. you're like you're done I'm just all I could think of is like I'm gonna start laughing I'm gonna get released today 
But oh my lord, there there were so many fun times with with that freaking group. My lord, that was some fun times. Like I said, we we throw out some quick questions just to break the ice a little bit. Dave, we uh want to start it off a little bit telling about yourself. So we know that you were committed to go to go to um, Clemson, and then you were drafted by the Phillies supplemental first pick after Reggie Taylor. So kind of walk us through kind of what your career was like. You know who uh you know what. What coaches really took to you and, and you know really helped you out and, and started to develop you? Because you were only you're what eighteen year eighteen years old when you signed. You're out of high school, so you know they kind of got their hands sure. on you and molded you. And you know I remember long some long bullpen sessions in Clearwater when it was 140 degrees out in the turf. But <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. Other than that, yeah, pro- tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, for, yeah, okay, so. Yeah, we, we touched on the football side of things. I mean, I grew up more of a soccer player first than anything, and I was on my way to go play college soccer. Um, baseball was kind of the fun sport that I was good at naturally, but uh, football kind of came in the picture at, in high school, so then kind of found a niche as a, as a quarterback and then was going to try to find somewhere where I could do all three in college. And then um, soccer just became kind of – I wanted to put that on the back seat because it was just getting a little bit harder to – go from football season in the, in the fall and then spring you got summer or you got baseball so I gave up soccer around junior year there and then just focused on, on baseball football so I uh, ended up um, committing to, to Clemson went on some recruiting visits to uh, Miami Florida uh, BYU Clemson and uh, UCLA at the time for, for football scholarships and then um so signed for Clemson, then senior, the senior year the spring came around and then that's when I got drafted by the Phillies in the first round so once I started that, um, basically said, okay, well, I don't want to risk injury and kind of go down that route. Didn't want to be tearing uh, me up like I did already. You know, I miss um, playing football. I would have liked to have done it if I did it over again. But going to play baseball, I don't have any regrets on it. So I've uh, fast forward through my baseball career, uh, tearing me up like I did already. I finished, had injuries that uh, ended my career, shoulder surgeries. So when I stopped playing, I wanted to create a program that blended physical therapy with the actual healthy training that you would if you didn't have an injury to kind of, you know, at the, at the, at the you know, they call it prehab now, but at the time there really wasn't anything out there that was really focusing on the preventative side of injury until you got injured. So I just wanted to kind of uh, grab that kind of concept. It worked really well for me. I came back after prehab, which a lot of people have that same story. It's really just that you're forced to do it with the physical therapist. So um, started that in, gosh, 11 years ago, maybe. 11th just amazing come through and move on now uh, that concept kind of now is very training it's no more that just uh three or four exercises and hard as you can a little bit more scientifically done so we um we started that really early on and it's been a very successful recipe so uh yeah so it, it turned into like kind of teaching lessons hitting those kind of things and on the outside we had uh teams and team training so we've kind of um kept that formula because usually it's the opposite way it's team travel ball team first and it's private instruction and then there's these like very small outside oh we got a strength train too well, we don't have a lot of time for it so we'll take you through something really quick like agility ladders or something so um now we're at the point where we have our own travel ball teams we've we kind of forced them to do strength training in a more serious way and then our concepts that i've created over the time pocket path pocket uh, irony to kind of teach that part of it we've also created a um a wearable technology to teach arm path that um, we're about to let me let me ask you this so when you were with all of the training that goes on with the kids today you know i I don't i don't ever remember i mean i remember getting little packets in the off season on you know here you know do some squats do this and that but today it's a lot it's a lot more different you have way more technology um, and kids are getting added at a younger age, which is probably why, you know, guys are throwing so much more hard, throwing a lot harder today than they were obviously, you know, back when, back when we played. Um, now, when you got hurt, was it, you get a chance to talk to a lot of trainers and, right. that, and was that one of the, one of the kind of the stepping stones that said, Hey, when I'm done with, when I'm done with playing, you know, this is a way that I can give back and kind of help out, help develop the kids that are be the next generation so yeah so anyway like you said it was just it was trying to avoid the the career ending that i had and be able to give them a lot better chance at playing ball playing baseball longer whether that meant just getting through high school or meant getting to college or going to pro ball as long as you can 
the whole concept to start PFA was just um, was to prevent injuries. In fact, it was called prevention fitness, turned to performance fitness for athletes when a lot of guys were saying, this can we join? So, um, so we changed the name of it for that reason. That's how the cup started. So when you got when you got done with pro ball, well, let me, I'll, I'll, I'll run through it. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I'll run. I'll run back through kind of that pro ball side. So go getting into this this world of fitness. I was kind of able to to connect with a lot of really important, high level, smart trainers, um, therapists, coaches. You know, I went out to Eric Cressy in, in Massachusetts for a week. I went down to Jason Riley down in Tampa for a week. I spent time with the Phillies strength coaches and trainers. Uh, so I, I kind of knew that I had a really good group of experts that were a lot smarter than me and done it a long time. I knew I had my strength. My strength was the actual being able to execute what um, they couldn't. You know, as a trainer, they could they could tell you what you should be doing, but they couldn't really do it to see if that was exactly what you needed to do. So um, with that combination, being able to stay in shape and throw and still be able to execute these things, combining it was a really good formula. So that kind of got me also also having success in the strength training world but it also gave me kind of a, uh, a new direction of, of looking at just like in, in training, you, you get the movements right, right? If you're going to do a squat, you better learn how to squat. If you're going to do uh, shoulder exercises or anything, you better make sure your arm can move the right way. So knowing the anatomy and how the body should move through maybe FMS tests and all those things, it started to get me thinking like, let me look at how the top pitchers in the game move that last the longest. And people may, you know, if there's anything I'm guilty about, it's like, oh, you teach, um, the same way to, to all these guys. And, and it's, it's me teaching throwing the right way is actually where I start from. Because if you looked at major league baseball pitchers, you can see a lot of different ways of doing it. Stabbing, head moving, um, arm up, arm down, wrapping the wrist. And, and they're like, you, if you just took that on the surface, it's really easy just to think, Oh, okay. You could do it a million different ways. But I always have this analogy that I use that I, I want to always tell a guy for the first time is, you know, if we did that and we looked at it, let's get rid of all relievers. And they ask me why, well, relievers are great pitchers, you know, um, because relievers aren't there for really positive reasons most of the time at some point in their career. Like you don't tell a, a pitcher, hey, son, you throw four pitches for strikes. You maintain your velocity from first inning to the last inning. You stay healthy all season long. You get lefties out really good, just like you do. You get righties out. I think you'd be a perfect bullpen guy. <laughs> Nobody says that, right? So you become a reliever for all those other reasons, though. Hey, you don't get righties out, but you get lefties out. Hey, you're really good one time through the lineup, but that second time you're not. Or, hey, you, you get injured all the time, so let's just maybe cut the innings down. So baseball's got a great way of not having to try to fix or figure out you. They just give you a different job that works for that time because they know they can replace you eventually either by the draft or free agency or minor leagues or whatever. So in that sense, I, I get rid of relievers and I go, all right, now we're left with starting pitchers. So there's five pitchers. And unless it's your favorite team, I don't think not, not many of us know who the three, four, five starters are on, on any team. Um, so who do you know? You know the number one and two starters on almost every team. Why do you know them? Because they, they're, they, they start in the all-star game every single year for the last 10 years. So if you start looking at guys who have played long careers, you see that those similarities start to get a lot closer. It's a lot easier to see that there's common denominators. And when you can start identifying that, whether it's a work ethic thing, it's a combination, actually. It's a work ethic thing. They're, they're horses. They're work, good, hard workers. But the thing that, they, that no one looks at because they're distracted by all the different ways to throw a pitch because you watch relievers, you watch starters, and you watch guys that are really hot right now, but then they're gone in a couple of years, is that the, the arm path and the lower half was very similar, especially the, the, uh, the uh, arm path. And that's where I started to hone in. I said, well, what else is similar to this? Because I was starting to study how shortstops throw. Because I've, I've always felt if you're a shortstop, you can play any position on the field. And it's not just because you have a strong arm, but it's a strong arm, it's an accurate arm, and you can do both those things in a short time, meaning a short space, backhand, whatever you got to do, or your body's in any position possible, you still throw the same way. So the arm action was continuing being the same. What the arm action was was a sequence, meaning the hand was the last thing to come through. So when you see pitching drills, you see all these crazy drills I see out there, it's very ball dominant, whether that's taking the ball in that cobra position to start and trying to throw where you see little kids do that and they, that just screws up their entire sequence. Or if it's uh, too heavy or too many weighted ball throwing that they become very uh, into the ear, into the ear, they, they start wrapping more because they're, they're thinking that they have to get there because they just do thousands of reps. A lot of guys do a lot of those reps. So they start imprinting these what I call ball dominant uh, patterns. So getting them out of the ball dominant pattern, getting into a natural pattern was the shortstop throwing. 
because they, they don't get taught to throw. They, they get taught to how to catch a ground ball, how to move their feet, where to anticipate where the ball is, everything but throwing the baseball. But yet you see the outfielders and pitchers down there doing these crazy drills while the shortstop's like, no, I'm just going to grab the ball, throw the ball. All right. You know, hey, I'm going to take 150, 200 ground balls and I'm going to throw to second, I'm going to throw to first, I'm going to move around. So it's always the same. So the pattern gets ingrained. So when I looked at the, the uh, quarterbacks, there was the same thing. So coming from a quarterback background, that was the same throwing pattern that you would do. It's just a little more abbreviated, a little higher. So with those two things in common, I look back at those pitchers who last for a long time in their career and play forever, and I started to realize, wait, they're, they're, they're all grow up as shortstops. They grew up as quarterbacks. Wow, look, there's that similarity. And anybody, any scout will tell you, if you see a good arm action on any kid, if you saw 100 kids out there and you saw like just a couple throws, Within two or three throws, you see that good arm action and that good arm, and you go, oh, that's a good athlete. He, he could be just as good an athlete as the guy next to him that's throwing all funky, but that guy hasn't been taught any different. But that guy already elevated in that scout's mind that he's a good athlete. He's already checked that list, so he's, he's already going to be watched a little harder. So to me, that was the whole basis of it. I was like, man, I'm going to start getting these guys to, to train as if they're going to be, when they're older, a starting pitcher that lasts 10 years plus in the big leagues. You know, instead of just going, oh, you're doing a great job at, at age seven or eight or nine doing it that way, that's just because you're stronger than everybody. Or, you know, you're going to hit a plateau. You're going to hit a peak pretty soon. And that's where our success, that's our secret recipe kind of came in and, uh, and, and why, you know, we, we do have a lot of success. And we are hired by uh, teams all over to kind of fix guys, so to speak. Um, and we start from there. So when you're talking about arm path, okay, mm -hmm. so, <clears throat> I, I mean, I – I've spent the last three years on the internet a lot, you know, mm -hmm. looking at different YouTube videos, pitchers, the same thing, you know, and, and when, mm -hmm. when I was playing, I always remembered pitchers were either classified as two things. They were either a drop and drive guy or a tall and fall. And realistically, I mean, I mean it's kind of almost a combination of both where all of the, the work is being done by the lower half and it's not a rush. I see young kids right now where they get on the mound and they lift up to balance, you know, and everything's centered, and then they just go as fast as they can, and that's where everything, it turns into all arm. So when you're taking a kid, say, say a, a, a freshman or sophomore in high school comes to you, and mm -hmm. they're kind of arm dominant where they're not using the legs, how do, you, how do you go about teaching him to say almost, let's not even worry about your arm, let's just let it get into position naturally, you know, where it follows everything. Right. If that's so – that's the case. Like, yeah. like a shortstop, for instance. And all of our right. – I mean, every, I think every catcher we've interviewed started off – Ty, am I right? That yeah. we're, we're shortstops. Everyone. You Just know? about everyone. Some infield yep. position. Yep. yep. That's the, that's uh, the I see it all the time. So, um, right. And then – so there's a sequence that's in that, too. So um, you sometimes have to – well, first you educate the, the player. So if you've got a guy who comes in and he's not using his lower half and his arm's a mess, everything's a mess – I don't care about his lower half until I get him to understand the concept of getting the simplicity of his arm pattern. So when I get the arm sequence right, which means the ball just follows the elbow instead of the ball leading the elbow. So once the ball follows the elbow and when your elbow gets into the sweet spot, we call it two position. Now the hips can do the rest of the work and then that lays the arm back. So you don't want to force that. What ends up happening with all those drills, ball dominant drills is they're forcing the ball into that position because they saw a picture on a baseball card or a magazine of a player in that position problem was is that was not a stop position that was a moving position that was a camera frame that took that shot so you're getting these guys to completely miss the pattern and, and when that pattern is good it creates a separation stretch which is called a short stretch cycle muscles that are like rubber bands that's what they want to do then it allows it to, to do that and that's where you get that extra jump so when you do that too though you can fix the lower half much easier after that because if, if you try to fix the lower half, and I've done this for 10 plus years, so I know this cold. If I just try to fix a lower half issue and the arm is stabbing or around or it's, it's messing up, and, and even in the pro level now they're starting to figure this out because they're taking a picture of a guy and maybe, maybe he's very far forward because they're stopping the camera when his foot hits the ground relative right. to where his arm is. Now they look at his lower half and they point at his knee. Look, his knee's collapsed in. He's already given up all his weight shift. Yeah, but he didn't if you would have taken the picture when his arm was quicker to that position earlier in the sequence. If it's there earlier in the sequence, then his body actually is back, his weight is back, and the weight shift's ready to kind of counter into, the, uh, into that kind of catapult position. So nobody looks at that until now they're starting to look at it more. 
Uh, and that's just one piece of it. So when you are working on the lower half of a guide, it is very, very wise for you to get him to understand that if you get too quick with this, it's going to throw the whole system off. And if you think of anything, any other sport, golf and hitting is always a, a, the two ones that come to mind. These are all relative to kinematic sequences that, you know, that time up very, very, very similar to a, to a thrower, uh, to a pitcher. But the difference is golf and hitting would for sure start with making sure there's no crazy anomalies down here. Golfer wouldn't be stabbing or wrapping his wrist back on his backswing. He would try to get his backswing in a smooth position. And then he gets his hips and everything and instructs him to do that. But as pitching coaches, I just feel like they're inherently lazy or they're, they're just convinced that when you watch, you can see so many different guys doing it, that you can do it anyway, is that if you fix the backswing, so to speak, on a pitcher and got that consistent and timed up well, every part of that kinematic chain starts to improve. And you haven't even talked about it yet. And again, this is 10 plus years of experience of doing this, where I used to try to figure out how to keep his glove closed, keep his head posture on. Hey, you're, you're dropping low. Hey, you're, you're opening up your front foot. And I realized, man, when I cleaned this up and got him doing shortstop drills and infield drills, he all of a sudden became timed up so much better. And that was a, that was a huge moment of me figuring that out. So going back to that lower half drill, like start, you're going to get to Laura, but start to make sure that he's simple and he looks like a, a nice, easy shortstop throwing. And then once you get that, it's so much easier to teach the rest of it. So much easier. There's a lot of, a lot of kids will, when they throw, <clears throat> you know, you see the arms speeding up at different points. You know, a lot of the kids will, <coughs> excuse me, they'll get the ball back here behind their shoulder and they go as fast as they can. And that all it's doing is, yeah, letting them fly yeah, open. No, they're, they're not in sequence. Mm -hmm. So yeah. do you have? Yeah, that's do you have these kids almost mm -hmm. going in slow motion so they can kind of see it and feel it. Uh, maybe, maybe in the beginning, yeah, yeah. I like a lot of dry work. So I, I've, I've actually, you know, like I said, we're we're about to. I don't want. I can't give too much about it, but we do have a really powerful. It's what I've been. It's my secret weapon for the last like four or five years. Why we've done it better than anybody is that I have an actual wearable technology that is is um, able to teach that very, very easily and a uh, very simple concept. Um, I'll shoot it to you offline to show you. Yeah. You'll love it. Because um, it's for catching too. It's actually a throwing concept. So my biggest thing, like I said earlier, is if you teach him to throw properly, you've checked off like a huge checkpoint in teaching them how to play any other position. If they have funk in their delivery, even as a plain catch, which by the way is 95% of their throws. So if you don't make those throws um, consistent and clean, then good luck trying to take that three to 5% of their other throws on the mound and try to try to change anything. It's just not going to happen. You know, it'd be like, uh, I, I kind of chuckle about this, but why pitching coaches I think are lazy is that you imagine a hitting coach doing what a pitching coach does, meaning, Hey, Chris, you're group one. Uh, you're going to, you're going to hit uh, 25 swings on Wednesday at three. Tyler, you're going to go on Thursday. You got 25 swings and then uh, you're group two. And then he walks away and you're going, what the hell? Wait, what about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? Oh, he goes, oh, my bad. Just go down the left field line and take a hundred crappy swings with your, with your friends, with your partner, <laughs> you know, and then he only works with you once a week. Well, that's a bullpen. That's a, that's what pitching coaches do. They let you throw like crap down the left field line. And then on one day a week, they throw this magical bullpen that they're supposed to fix everything. You know, it, 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 it's, it baffles me. There's no plan to set up a, a, a system that's individualized, but has a kind of connection of there is some fundamental things that you have to do right. Mm -hmm. And then you can go into making it your own, you know, and that's, and that's why when you look at our pocket throwers, they aren't all the same. They don't look like Joe Kelly because there's Joe Kelly and then there's Walker Bueller. And then there's all these other pitchers that, that demonstrate the perfect sequence. And it's a sequence thing. It's not a position thing. Um, it's not a short arm. It's not a long arm. It's a sequence thing. It's making sure that your arm is the only is the product of the hips delivering it. And the arm should feel weightless, but it should be in the right position relative to where elbow ball are. And that's the, that's the way we teach it. And that's how we train. And that's why catchers tend to be good any position because they catch the ball and they're always in sequence. There's no, the, the ball follows the elbow all the time. You know, the quarterback, same thing. You never want to take the ball first as a catcher. You'd be, you'd be in trouble there. So it's just the same thing. It's just a, now you get a catcher with a longer, you know, put him on the mound and he gets a longer stride, but his whole life he's, he's done it so efficiently 
that now all he has to do is just now he drops it a little bit. He times that up and he's like, yeah, pitching's not, yeah, this is easy. And, but you get that pitcher who's, or that outfielder who's always long and always funky. And then you put him on the mound and add adrenaline and long and stride. And now he gets even longer and funkier and nobody will, you know, look at that and go, don't fix on the mound, fix. I'd rather him play catch with the catcher all, all week long and don't even teach him how to throw. Don't even teach him anything. Just, Hey, throw like that guy and keep throwing like that. And that's an extreme version of it, but um, it has worked really well to, to, to get guys to be throwing, especially pitchers. Don't throw like pitchers. Don't do a bunch of leg kicks and flat grounds. Just get out there and watch the other side of the field where you see all these position players throwing back and forth to each other, hitting each other in the chest every time. And then you go to the other side of the field, all the pitchers throwing and balls are going to center field. They're hitting the wall behind you because they're all doing all these weird drills and all these funky things mm-hmm. instead of just being dude, athlete, man, just be an athlete, but understand it. And then you'll be able to transfer it into being a pitcher. So I want to ask you something, Dave, about, you talked about using wearable technology. Have you used in the sequencing of the throw, et cetera, but have you used something like K-Vest? And do you, I mean, I don't know if you have or you have not, but we had a- I haven't used it, yeah. I haven't used it, but I know of it. Um, and then, so uh, as far as like the Rap Soto stuff, I know that we, prior to jumping on the call, we talked a little bit about you had Rap Soto in your, your facility. Yep. What are you using with that? I mean, are you watching, you know, mm-hmm. ball flight, um, spin efficiency, uh, spin access? How are you attributing yeah. maybe that data so, back mm-hmm. into how you're then assessing these guys and how their, their sequencing might be off? Right. So, yeah, you know, that absolutely is a great question because we inadvertently found out that teaching the style that we teach, and this is what's gotten the attention of major league teams, is it had increased guys – um, spin efficiency and vertical ride. If they were a vertical ride guy, it increased their horizontal break. If they were a horizontal break guy, instead of changing it at all, it actually just enhanced it, made it easier to do. Um, most of our pitchers. So we have uh, a lot of guys who've been drafted, a lot of guys who are in pro ball now are in the big leagues. And it's a very common, it's like 80% are in the elite ride numbers. And that's, if you look league wise, that's not like that. It's very, it's very much, that's an anomaly, like having that many guys with elite ride. We have that consistently and having the Rapsodo now um, is making it easier to see the actual uh, differences in how he might be 18 to 19 on the vertical ride or vertical break. And, but I can see he needs a little subtle adjustment. So he makes an adjustment. Maybe it's a turn of the wrist so he can get into that position a little better. And then all of a sudden, boom, instantly 20 21 and mm-hmm. so that gives a great way for us to, to kind of get that athlete to go oh crap like it did it, it felt good before that but i didn't have numbers to verify it i just mm-hmm. knew it felt good now we have the numbers to verify it which then uh, gives us a, a big advantage for you know it could be just um, taking a guy who you know people are kind of like oh so so on but going hey dude this guy's 92 93 but he's 22 vertical really we're in we'll sign him you know we'll give him an extra whatever a job or a hundred grand or whatever that makes a big difference now in today's world so we're, we're convinced and we've proven it enough here in the last 10 years that our system creates that because it just lets the arm become a enhancer to your throw rather than trying to be something that you're trying to fight through it by moving your body around and trying to get it out of your way to just deliver a ball that you could have done a heck of a lot easier if you would have addressed that first and made that simple are you marrying it at all with like any motion capture, high-speed cameras? Do you have that yeah, inside your facility? Not, not, not yet. We haven't converted into a full lab yet, uh, but we use, you know, typical just slow-mo cameras we've had used um, just to overlay some stuff. But we're, we're using um, some of the diamond kinetic balls and the, the uh, pitch logic balls because I'm a big believer in improving their catch play. Problem with the Rapsodos and Trackmans, you have to kind of be on the mound for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So what I'm – more interested in is getting their habits better getting their catch play better that just makes my life a little easier to transfer it onto the mound so that's i think where people get stuck on is they let them do whatever they want they bring the delivery up he's a mess but he's getting some pretty decent numbers in by the way maybe he's gotten a little bit stronger and his velocity's gotten up but i look at that as yeah he's getting to he just got to his threshold if he would have cleaned up he could have got past that threshold he'll never know it because you don't know what you don't know so to me, that's the, the reason I spend more time on developing good throwers is because it, I can make you a pitcher a lot easier if you're a good thrower. So, so you're looking at it as – so. well, let me, let me step back. Let me re-ask this question. So 
I'm looking at the finish. You know, people talk about, well, everything happens on the backside, the front side, it, it does what it does. It just happens naturally. So you had a guy like a, a Bob Gibson who would fall off the left side of the mound. And then you had a guy like a Mark Pryor who was pretty consistent. Um, they always talked about how sound his mechanic was or his mechanics were, but yet he eventually got injured. And then you had a guy like Bob Gibson who threw the shit out of the ball, yet he pitched for, you know, 20 years. Mm-hmm. what do you say to the guy that you see that has really good sound you know backside mechanics whatever you want to call it, but the finish is maybe a bob gibson-esque type finish or a mark Pryor? does that matter i guess um yeah i mean different circumstances but i would say on the mark Pryor one of it and i just was at his house like about three weeks ago so <laughs> i'm fresh in a conversation with him about this is that um his sequence was wrong his sequence was velocity he was trying to create and this is where you see these high elbow guys is that they're trying to their brain is trying to accelerate then their hips accelerate and then their arm follows it and it should be the opposite way it should be you're putting the arm in a in a, in a position to let your hips accelerate and the arm to just go just let it be weightless let it flow so when you see guys that are like that it's just because they're they're trying to throw before they've gotten their hips going and that's why they get tangled up so uh, we see this in a lot of young kids that have really good arms they don't, and they're growing, so they don't know how to use their hips really. They're awkward and uncoordinated. And you just can't speed that up sometimes. It's just the way it is. But you can put them in relaxed positions, in the two position, and then get them to throw that way. So then they start to realize, okay, don't use this. Use this lower half to initiate the throwing. And then that becomes – and then all of a sudden you start to see less and less of this elbow height. And that's been a, a good thing that we do on our, with the, our wearable technology. That really helps that a lot. And that was one of the conversations we had with him. So, yeah, did he – was he really – he's efficient as far as what it looked like on the outside because he you know, threw so hard and all that stuff. But that velocity is coming from other places in his body that are gifted. The arm was a deliverer. It's like having a race car that you keep working on the engine, you keep getting a better engine and better engine, but your wheels are off the line. And when your wheels are off the line, you're still the first guy in the, uh, in the pits every time, no matter how good your engine is. So that's kind of where I would look at him on it. Uh, we had Bob Gibson, you know, gifted athlete, obviously superstar athlete, um, really good sequencing, a little longer, you know, has a glove up here a little bit kind of, and because he's a little longer, uh, that takes longer for the arm to get into that power position. So by that time, his weight's still shifting forward, forward. So then you see his knee kind of open up and collapse just a little bit to that first base side, which then brings him over there. But I got no problem with that because you're going full tilt in games, you know, a guy like that, he's probably playing catch and just delivering athletic throws all day just because that's who he was in his DNA, that he's a superstar athlete. So for him, it's easy for him to tie him up, even if he is a little longer, a little wilder than everybody else. It doesn't mean he couldn't have gotten that a little bit tamed and done even better, you know, and then mm-hmm. a career that was like Nolan Ryan, where you see Nolan Ryan very long in the beginning. And then by the time he's, yeah, he's, he's about halfway through the season, he's like literally right in the hip section, his gloves calmer, his, his arm path is cleaner. And that guy gets better as he gets older and sustains it longer than everybody than, than there was. So that's, that's kind of how I look at things. Well, since you talked about Mark Fryer, <clears throat> you know, you remember when he came up and even when, when Strasburg made their debut, their debut, it was, they always talked about their, their motions are different. They have that, that inverted, um, mm-hmm. what would they call it? The inverted, the M inverted position w. or inverted, yeah, inverted W. Um, mm-hmm. And then you saw a lot of kids starting to mimic that, you know. So mm-hmm. when, when you see a kid that is – everybody imitates their favorite guys on TV. And there were, there were tons of, of guys and kids that you would see that would be doing that. Um, how, is, how is that almost – you don't really see a whole lot of that anymore. Is that just people have a better understanding of, of how the arm should work or what their, what their body should do? Yeah. I, don't, I mean, I, listen, I remember catching you. And I remember you coming real fast, almost like leaning forward, and then your arm was way back here and just boom, yeah. popping mm-hmm. up. You know, so yeah. a lot of it was yeah, trying to that. find the yeah, release that's... point out of there. Yeah, and I, I was told my mechanics were really great my whole career, but now that I know what I know and I see it and I watch it, I'm like, oh, God, like this is terrible. There's so many things that I could have made better improved with things that we talk about now. Um, so yeah, I do think it's a combination of people know a little bit more. They're they're teaching how to use the hips better. Um, 
they can identify like, whoa, that's not good. It doesn't mean that you'll see guys with, with a lot of that because the scap is what moves the elbow, you know, the elbows back. You want that. You want that, that elbow to kind of launch back into that spring because that's like, it's like a trampoline of the body. It kind of delivers a little more force. Like you see DeGrom, you almost see the, the uh, elbows touch behind them. Um, what ends up kind of talking about those guys that get up here though, that's the, that's the sequence problem. That's where you definitely would want to fix that. So uh, that becomes a little more obvious to fix. Um, yeah. And then now, then, then it was just kind of new, you know, but yeah, I mean, it's better training. It's smarter. It's um, knowing what to look for the red flags and then uh, understanding that if you can create something that's, you know, you just as knowledge, I guess, you know, before it's just like, it's new. It's like, Oh God, you know, what is he doing? Uh, and that's important to understand how to teach them because if they can learn it as good as you know it, then that way when they go off, they can keep the, the, the changes as long as they can. Are there any things that you guys use to help kids to learn how to accelerate their hips a little bit more? I like using the medicine ball for all that. So medicine ball and then just uh, quick athletic throwing just gets their hips rotating a little more dynamically. Um, everybody's a little different on how they can do that, but the medicine ball is a, is a good way to, to kind of in integrate their, their movement for it you know, rather than do too many stationary things. Now, what, uh, what size medicine balls do you, you kind of use? Um, I like to use the eight pound generally as my, my go-to. Um, but I can go down to the twos and or, or probably fours and fives. If I, if I'm trying to develop a little more, um, power as far as speed power and, um, mm -hmm. strength power, I might use the eight pounder. And I like to use like, to get them to understand the movement. Cause I got, a, I got, I've got a, a line of people getting ready to, to say this. So I, I apologize, but I'm going to have to get moving here pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. Um, no, great, great information. Um, I guess the last question with all, with all this stuff that's going on right now, Dave, um, with how successful you've been with developing guys, and I'm sure the travel guys out there are not um, bullheaded and saying, well, you know, you're my guy, I want you to, I'll teach you even though I'm a dad. Um, you know, you're getting that, you got that reputation, obviously, of developing just from all the people that you've, you've put out there. Is it, mm -hmm. Now, you've done some stuff with the major league teams. Has anyone talked to you about being a pitching coach for them down the road? Oh, yeah. I've turned that down a couple of times. So um, I, I have a really good gig here, and I, I would never want to go on another bus ride or <laughs> the rest of my life. Or um, I do have some consulting things that I do. So I'm, uh, I, I like that fit a lot better than trying to grind out there and, uh, and be in an organization full time. So. Um, yeah, and I got some other things that I'm, I'm getting ready to, to launch. It's going to take a lot of time in my hands, so um, I'm happy where I'm doing. Yeah, that's great, man. Well, like I said, we'll, we'll let you get going. We do appreciate you coming out here. And we have, like I said, we haven't, we haven't talked about arm care and development. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are – Yeah, let's jump, uh, jump, jump on another one if you want. One yeah, there's, there's so many – there's so many different growing programs out there. You know, you've got the driveline, um, which a lot of guys are using. You've got, uh, you know, groups down in the top velocity down in Louisiana, which is more medicine ball based. You know, I think at the end of the day, they're all trying to accomplish the same thing. What is, I mean, do you use a combination of those things or just kind of your own system that, that has worked? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think everything's a combination of, of, of things, you know, top velocity, uh, a lot of power lifting and, and a lot of um, medicine ball throwing, um, driveline, obviously, your plyo balls, weighted ball throwing. I think uh, we can all use bits and pieces of it. The key is, uh, in my opinion, is learning how to move correctly before you put all the strength on an athlete and understanding that there is a good, a, a more efficient way than just oh, man, I can show you 10 different pitchers that move different ways and they're in the big leagues and they're successful. It's like, yeah, that's one strip. But if you, un, you know, just let, get the layers tripped a little bit, you might find that the younger generation of kids that maybe aren't as strong and athletically gifted to do it in an odd way but still be able to do it are be able to be taught a way that is like the guys who spend 20 years in the big leagues rather than just, you know, two to five years in the big leagues and they kind of flash away and they never hear from them again. So to me, that's that's the difference in what we teach, and we have a a very um, proven method to be able to do that. And that's why when guys see our pitchers or college coaches or scouts, they they already know he's going to throw strikes. Uh, he throws hard. That's what he's there for. God gave him that that way to do it. We're just trying to make him be able to do it a lot easier. 
So that way he can last a lot longer and recover a lot quicker. So that's kind of our, our, our philosophy on it. Sounds good. And just uh, on a final thought, you know, for, for the kids out there, there's a lot of kids that listen, obviously, to our show. Um, so when you're talking about, hey, if, if you're having, if you're struggling with just playing catch, you know, where you can't hit your partner in the chest, everything's getting, you know, over their heads or you're short, you know, basically it's, you have to learn how your, your arm path works, how to get um, yep. your hand going directly to your target. You know, it might take a little while. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's great. Any, any, any other things you, you want to throw out there for, uh, for the people listening that might have, I'm sure we'll yeah, get emails yeah. about questions that we'll probably forward on to you too, but any, uh, sure. anything else? <laughs> well, no, I mean, just follow, follow us on, um, on Instagram. Um, if you, we'll have some updates always coming up and what we're doing next. And like I said, we're, we're about a month or two away from, uh, launching a pretty cool product that I think is going to change the game for the youth and um and far beyond that it's already doing it it's been doing it for a while at the uh big league stage and high level stage so um we're just happy to bring it down to the youth and and show everybody um what the pocket path is and uh get them uh moving right i appreciate you guys having Very good me. all right dave thanks again buddy really appreciate you coming you on the show a lot of great stuff man be well cool, and we'll man. talk to you soon awesome thanks bud see you take care and that's a wrap on any number four. Remember everyone, go on over to our YouTube page and click that subscribe button to enter yourselves in a free giveaway in the coming weeks. Thank you all once again for continuing to drive the show forward by providing feedback on our social media platforms. We can't do this without you. From all of us at the Mound Visit, please stay safe, stay tuned, and we'll catch you real soon. Take you